Let's pray as we come to this passage. Father, we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to the first recorded instance of fake news, which is about all you can put from that particular passage. As uh, James indicated at the start, it's one which I, I suspect none of you have ever heard a sermon on before. I don't think I have. And um, if you look at the commentators, they're quite strange. They sort of jump this bit um, and move straight on to the disciples going off into Galilee. And it's quite strange if you actually look at the setting of this in Matthew's Gospel. You could jump straight from verse 10 in chapter 28 to verse 16. And the text would make perfectly good sense. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are told to go, tell my disciples, I will meet them in Galilee. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And you're straight off into a new part of the story. So why did Matthew feel it important to include this? I think those few words at the end of verse 15 give us a clue when he just says, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The Twitter feed have been going strongly and scattered far and wide that the body had been stolen. And I wonder, had the faith of some in Matthew's community been damaged because of rumors that the resurrection hadn't happened? We know that Paul was very clear when he wrote that the, the resurrection is central to our Christian hope. To the Corinthians, he says, if Christ be not raised, our hope is, is solely for this life and we are of all people most to be pitied. Pitied because our hope is diminished, pitied because death is still a final enemy which has not been overcome, and maybe pitied because we followed fake news rather than the truth. I want to, uh, to go backwards in the story a bit, just to, 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 to give the setting of this, to follow the story through and then consider what it might mean for us this morning. And the story actually begins the day after crucifixion. Jewish leadership are convinced that Jesus is a liar and a deceiver, and that he's deceived all the people who are going over to following him and they're losing sight of what for the Jewish leadership they see as the truth. And that fear of deception for them is now particularly emphasized as Jesus has died. After all, a dead Messiah is a contradiction in terms. They're desperate to find some way to make sure that they can guarantee their version of truth is going to get out there. armed with Jesus' own words to the disciples that on the third day he would rise again. The leaders want to, want to prevent what they would then see as an even greater deception being performed on the people. So they send a deputation to Pilate. If the Jewish leadership are really bothered about whether the resurrection might actually happen, Pilate just doesn't seem to care less. Because they go and say, Pilate, can you give us a guard, please? And Pilate's response is, well, you've already got one. Why are you bothering me about this for? I'm not interested. Go away. 
And who were these disciples that were going to be prevented from stealing the body? Well, all the male ones had scattered, as far as we can tell, with one exception. But potentially, none of them were there at the crucifixion or were even to be seen of at the moment. So terrified were they at what they'd gone through. The woman, women had watched all that had taken place. Perhaps it was they who were going to roll away this dirty great big stone and carry the body off and proclaim bodily resurrection everywhere. The guard is posted, eventually. And then, well, who arrives to roll back the stone? It is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who are named by Matthew. They come to a, a, a tomb where the stone has been sealed. There's armed guard outside. And then the angel of the Lord shows up. And mayhem breaks out all round at that stage. Cue earthquake, cue seal broken and the stone rolled away. Cue terrified soldiers who fall as dead men. And cue women who take it all in their stride. Follow the angel's um, instructions to look in the tomb at the grave clothes that are lying there. No body, just the grave clothes. And gladly receive the instruction to go and speak of resurrection to the other disciples and to send them to Galilee where they will meet with the risen Lord. Matthew's use of irony here is, is breathtaking, isn't it? You just look at what goes on. The soldiers become like dead men in the place of resurrection. The soldiers reported all that had happened, although quite what they'd seen if they were like dead men must be open to conjecture. The soldiers had to openly lie about their ability to stay awake on guard duty. Very serious military offence. And if the soldiers were actually asleep, how could they have seen anything at all? And then finally, the, the most significant one perhaps is that the message to be circulated was the very one they were trying to stop being circulated when they started all of this. I can imagine Matthew's congregation rolling about in the arms in laughter as, as, as this was read out to them. The sheer irony of, of, of what happens. And hopefully that laughter got inside those who were worried that the resurrection hadn't happened. Some of you um, may perhaps like me be, be, know the, the program The Unbelievable Truth on, on Radio 4. It's a, it's a great program where a team of comedians are given a short, give a short lecture um, in which they tell a whole load of rubbish and buried within it is five significant pieces of truth and that the others on the, on the, on the, on the show have to guess and, and ring and say, there's, there's a truth there, and they, uh, they win, um, win points if they spot a truth, and they lose points if there's a lie. And most of them are usually a negative by the time the program finishes. It, it's, it's full of, of comic potential, as you can imagine. But many times in those lectures, the lies at times may seem more plausible than the truths. And I wonder whether that was what was going on in Matthew's community. Were they really struggling to believe that resurrection had taken place? And that somehow this untruth 
about the body having been stolen was one which was becoming preeminent in their minds. I wonder where you are this morning. Are you struggling to believe that the resurrection actually happened? Or have you gone in, whether it's the fake truth here or all of the other different theories that people over the years have put forward as to why the resurrection didn't happen? Sometimes we've been asked to go into secondary schools around this time of the year to do something about the resurrection in the RE classes in the secondary schools. And um, one of the tasks that's always set during that in the class is that the kids are asked to consider all the possibilities of what might have happened that first Easter morning. And they can come up with however outrageous the suggestions are as to what took place, with one proviso, that the rest of the class is allowed to critique what they're saying. And so off they start, and um, all sorts of theories come up, of this, that, and the other, and generally what we find is in, when that's done is that nearly everything is battered away, if not everything battered away, with one exception which they can't quite get rid of, that the resurrection actually happened, and that Jesus did rise from the dead. That belief that Christ is risen stands right at the center of our belief as Christians. Yes, the cross is important. Without it, there is no forgiveness. No one to stand as mediator before God on our behalf. No way in which all the things in heaven and earth can be reconciled to God. No way in which a renewed heaven and earth can come into being. But without the resurrection, the Jewish leaders had it spot on. A dead Messiah is a contradiction in terms. But a resurrected Messiah, that changes everything. Death is no longer a foe to be feared, but a gateway to be passed through. But it's not just for the future, because it means new life is possible here, now. We can enter into that fullness of life that Jesus had promised. So did it happen? I love the way through the whole of this last part of Matthew's Gospel. There's an emphasis all the way through on Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Um, they're all called Mary in the, in the, in the resurrection narratives. Miriam was one of the commonest names that there was around, so you can understand that. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were the ones who stood at the foot of the cross and watched as Jesus died. They could see it was a real death. It wasn't a faint, it wasn't a swoon which a cool tomb would correct. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watched as Joseph took the body and carefully laid it in a tomb. They were heartbroken but they weren't blinded by their grief. They knew precisely which tomb they needed to go to. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watched as the stone was rolled across the tomb. And when they arrived on that first Easter morning, they were confronted by a sealed stone and a Roman guard. Nobody could have got in and stolen the body. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary stand there during an earthquake and see the angel of the Lord as the stone is rolled away. And they're invited to look into the tomb at the angel's behest. And what do they see? An empty tomb. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Who do you believe? The fake news of the authorities or the good news conveyed by Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? We need both cross and resurrection for the Christian faith to make any sense. Both are singular, supernatural events. But they are noted in texts outside of the scriptures too. But acknowledging the facts is very different from actually living them out in our lives. So what does resurrection mean? We're no longer in thrall to death. Yes, we will die, but death is not the end. I say an old song here in my notes, I think it was probably written in the 70s, that's probably ancient if I was doing this at the 7 o'clock service this evening. Um, but um, the words in that are, in his death is my birth and in his life is my life. Some of you will recognize the song. In the resurrection, we need have no fear of death itself, though we may have a fear of the dying process, and that's perfectly natural. But death becomes the way into a life lived eternally in God's presence rather than a literal dead end, as some of our philosophers would have us believe. When we mourn, and I suspect that covers most of us here, knowing the number of funerals there seem to have been over these past few months, we do mourn, we do grieve, we do weep, but we do so as those who have hope. Hope in a resurrected Lord. Hope in our own resurrection. The pain of losing a loved one will always be something for us to cope with. But we grieve in the light of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead as our funeral services have it. And resurrection life is not something just for the future. Jesus promises that we can begin to experience some of it now. Yes, we live in that now and not yet between Jesus' resurrection and his return again. But we can know the power of Jesus' resurrection in guiding us in our living. We can begin to enjoy something of a life lived in close relationship with Jesus here, now, today, this morning we can begin to experience the reconciliation that he brings with his Father and with each other. And with the saints down the ages, we can declare those wonderful words in the Creed. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Which are you going to believe in this morning? The fake news that the body was stolen or the joy that those early disciples found when they met with the risen Lord, even if they didn't fully understand it, and they came with their doubts and their fears to that mountain in Galilee when they met with him.
Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.